0: Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5 is going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, throw your hand up. We have Bibles we'd love to get into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, for sure throw your hand up and grab one of these. Take it home as our gift to you. And go to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're not familiar with, with, with God's word, it's more near the back. Just keep kind of trucking your way back. Hebrews, James, you'll get to First and 2 Peter. If you still can't find it, table of contents in the front of that Bible will help you out a lot. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 6. Now, As you're turning there, we, we, um, if, if you're new to our church, we had a pastor. Um, we're a new church. We're still figuring stuff out. <laughs> microphones. Um, We had a pastor, Pastor Lee Lewis, and and he had uh, come to us from Texas, and so had never been in Canada, never seen a winter. He rolled in about this time uh, of the year, and as he he came in, my wife and I, and a lot of the people just kept, you know, wanting to hang out with him, want to get to know him. We would say, hey, um, why don't you come down to the beach? Hey, why don't you come on the lake? Hey, why don't you come to the beach? We just always ask him, come on out. And he started thinking, man, what's with you guys in the beach? What's, yeah, you got lakes. I get it. Why do you always want to be on them, right? And then February came, right? <laughs> and Lee's like, I get it now. I understand why you guys love to get out because why? February's a tough month, isn't it? I mean, when I used to run a college ministry, our students would call it Snap Month because that's the month where students would lose it, right? Because in February, you leave behind a few months of freezing cold weather, but you know, no matter what that stupid groundhog says, in Muskoka, we still have probably into April of winter, right? And then, then April and May comes, and we're just hit with black flies, and like, why do we live here, right? You ever wonder that? Why are we living in this place, right? And then the summer comes, and we're like, yes, that's why we live here, right? And you forget all about the trials of all this stuff. It's almost like when, you, when you're uh, maybe having a baby and you're like all the pain of childbirth, you forget about it. But you're like, man, I, I want to have another kid, right? And mom's are like, stay in your lane, bro. <laughs> 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 you probably don't know much about that. All right, here's what I'm saying though. I mean, here's the thing about February. It might look dark and cold, and and as you roll into work and it's dark, as you come home and it's dark, you know, though, you know that warmer, sunnier days are coming, right? And you know that summer's going to be here. There's that hope of summer. But here's my question. What happens when your life hits a February sort of season? When right now you're in the midst of a dark time? In those midst, uh, in the midst of those tough times, how do we have hope? And and not a weak pie in the sky. Oh, I sure hope life gets better for me, but a deeply rooted hope, a hope that 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 is rooted in a street level, when rubber meets the road, you can grab a hold of it, live it out, kind of faith and hope. Peter's writing this letter here, and he gets to the end of this letter, and he, he's writing this letter to give people a hope that when, when life is difficult, when things come that are unexpected, when, when relationships are hard, when, when you're rejected, when, when it's just a hard season for us, and you're wondering, man, is there any hope in this? Is God at work in this? What does it look like to have hope in those times of Desperation. Because I know across this room, life is not easy for everybody who's here right now. The, the, the number of emails and texts and phone calls and conversations I've had this week just based on the fact that we started this series called Desperation, people saying, man, that's where I'm at. I'm in this place of desperation. The number of people as elders just this week, we prayed over people who were sick, people who have been walked with in difficult times, The whole backdrop of this letter of 1 Peter was was about suffering, and yet if you were to read through the letter that that Peter writes here, the the theme of the letter actually isn't suffering. It's a letter filled with talking about suffering, yes, but it's also filled with hope. Peter ends off this letter with these words of hope, and and they're words of hope for our church, they're words of of hope for our communities, for our family, they're words of hope for you. Starting in verse 6, it says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our first point this morning as we unpack these verses together. First, we see here a call to humility. There's a call to humility like like Peter's writing this letter and, and he knows that he's writing to people who are in very difficult times where where they're in this desperate place and it would have been easy for them to be filled with worry and fear and anxiousness and yet rather than saying man man life is hard isn't it I man I get it man it's so natural that you would have fear and worry What's he do instead? He, he dives underneath the anxiety. He goes beneath the fear and the worry and he starts to reveal the cause of it, the problem of it. And he says, the problem, what brings anxiousness during the times of trouble is our pride and self-sufficiency. It's us trusting in ourselves like we can take care of this. And, and we begin to worry and are filled with ang- anxiousness because we believe that things should turn out a certain way. I, I think that it should happen in this way and I lose hope when I try to grab a hold of and manipulate and control and make sure things work out the way I think it should be, I begin to worry. And when I'm worrying, what I'm saying is, God, I don't trust your plan. God, I'm the authority on the future. I trust myself. I trust my plans. And so so suffering has this way of of exposing us, of of exposing our self-sufficiency, of driving us to a dependence on God, and maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I've already experienced that. Man, I I get that. And you'd be able to stand up and give testimony where you would say, yeah, I knew that I needed God's grace, but if this season, what I've walked through, man, I now know. I know that I'm desperate for God's grace. These desperate moments can humble us if you go back a bit into verse 5, look where he says, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. He says, clothe yourselves. It isn't something that just naturally happens. You didn't just wake up and roll into some clothes and come. Some of you might look that way, right? But you didn't just roll into clothes and show up here, right? You chose what you were going to wear. Or maybe someone chose it for you, and you put on those clothes. And so, so when Peter says, humble yourselves, it's not, Lord, lead me to humility. The prayer is actually this, Lord, give me the strength to choose humility, to put humility on, to choose it daily. And he says, all of you, like every one of us needs this. Because because nobody here has life under control. Nobody here has arrived. All of us will struggle with self-sufficiency or despair. So we all need to hear this to stop grasping and, and as Peter says, put on humility. Humility. Now, before I go on, it might be a good idea to to define humility because it's a word we use a lot, but what's it actually mean? One way you can can define humility, how Scripture would define it, is to be brought low. So you're in a high place and you're humbled, you're brought low. If you go even further, though, Scripture talks about it as an attitude, not just a a position. So it's this idea of, of making your heart small, making yourself small. In fact, let me put an even finer point on it. Not so much that we make ourselves that way. Humility is realizing the reality that that's actually where I am. It's it's really seeing clearly who you are. I mean, Jesus said it this way. He said, if you want to come into the kingdom, you have to first be humbled like a little child. You, You have to realize who you are. You're a child in desperate need of salvation that you're completely dependent on Christ for everything, for your atonement, for your forgiveness. And so what is humility then? It's seeing yourself rightly. It's reminding yourself who you are. And and this humility is often helped out, usually in comparison, isn't it? We're humbled when we're compared to something greater than we are, right? You, You might think, you know, I'm a pretty good athlete. I work out a lot. And then you go stand next to a professional athlete and you're like, yeah, I'm not that athletic, right? Or, or maybe you're the smartest kid in your school, in high school, then you, you hit university, and you're like, okay, there's a lot of smart people. Maybe I'm not the smartest person in the world, right? Or, or have you ever had this where you're out walking and, and you trip over something? I, mean, I call them humble stones, right? You go, whoop, and you do that trip, and, and you're, you're embarrassed. Why are we embarrassed? Because we wanted to be known, hey, I walk awesome. I never trip like this, right? And so we get embarrassed by that, Right? Or, or maybe, maybe you have your kids with you and you have young kids and you, you go through Walmart and your kid has a meltdown in Walmart and we're horribly embarrassed. Why are we embarrassed? I mean, our kids do it at home, right? We're, we're embarrassed because we want people to think, yeah, my kids don't actually do this. My kids are great, perfect kids. They don't lose it while they're losing it, right? There's a way where comparison can negatively humble us, but Peter actually points to a positive way for us to be humbled, a positive way where we're brought low. And, and who's he compare us to? Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We're humbled when we put ourselves in right standing before God. I mean, Christian humility is seeing who I am and who God is. It says, humble yourself. Make yourself low. Cut yourself down a notch. and It doesn't matter how long you follow God. How long you've known Christ. God says they in our lives, all of our lives. There's those areas where you say, I, I need to cut this down a bit to be brought lower. In fact, this is a command here to humble yourself. And it's, it's written in a way, if you're kind of like an original languages, Greek geek kind of person, you love how the words are all made. It's, the, the, the command here is actually, it's an aorist passive indicative. What does that mean? It means that it's a command to do something based on who you already are. So something's happened to you. This is who you are, so live out of that. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you're you're not being asked to do something that you aren't. It's, It's not like telling an unconscious person to wake up. God is saying, this is who you are. This is, you're standing before me. Humble yourself then. It's humility that recognizes that God is in control that we are under the mighty hand of God. Now that, that phrase that Peter chooses to use there, it's, if, if you're a, a Jewish person reading this letter, that would be a phrase that you'd be like, man, that sounds familiar to me, because Peter chooses a, a, a specific way of saying this, that under the mighty hand of God would remind you of God who led them out of Egypt. It was under the mighty hand that he rescued them from Pharaoh. It was under the mighty hand that he parted the Red Sea and they were set free. And Peter wants us to think of that image, that there's hope in humility when we recognize that God is in control. And not just intellectually or theologically going, yeah, I get that, but, but allow that truth to challenge you, to change you, to, to reorient you. Because pride and self-sufficiency, it's a false reality. It's not true. This self-sufficiency, it's like standing at the Red Sea as God parts the Red Sea, and you're holding up the wall going, go quick, I got it, right? Like it's you doing it, right? And you've got either despair, worrying that it's going to collapse if you don't hold it up, or you have pride thinking, I got this. So it's this pride seen in two different ways. It's self-sufficiency either way. Proud, self-sufficient people live like they are in control of their lives and it leads either to a pride scene in power or a pride scene in despair, but in in humility, we posture ourselves in a way where we say, I'm not in control. So you, you could roll into church here this morning and someone would say, hey, how you doing? Totally out of control. Praise God. Welcome, Right? No, you don't get it. My life is a mess. It's out of control. Yep, we all are. Come on in. Some people have nicer layers to cover up the fact or or well-fit masks that can hide this. But the reality is none of us are in control. That's the beginning of the gospel, isn't it? Where where to become a Christian, you realize I can't do this on my own. God calls me to be holy and perfect and, and I can't do that. That's a problem and my only solution is Jesus. I can't solve my sin problem. Now you become a, a Christian by giving God your life, trusting him with your forgiveness, a forgiveness that you can't earn, a forgiveness you don't deserve, a forgiveness you can't achieve on your own. And Jesus steps in and he saves us in our utter sinful brokenness. That's Christian humility. That's where it begins. But here's the thing. If you're a Christ follower, it doesn't stop there. It it continues, and and it changes how we view everything, especially ourselves. Jesus frees me up from thinking that it's all on me. I'm the one who has to do it, and he frees us up to trust him completely. In fact, I love how Tim Keller explains gospel humility. He says it this way. He says, True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stopped thinking about myself at all. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. He says this, a truly gospel-humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel-humbled, self-forgetting person. What he mean? he means you start to see everything through the lens of who you are in relationship to God. Now, how do you get there? How do you get to that place of, of humility in the midst of hard things, in the midst of suffering? Look at verse 7. He says, he's casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So how do we get rid of pride that, that leads us to think we're in control? How do, we, how do we deal with pride that could lead us to despair? How do I put on humility? We stop trying to solve everything on our own and we cast our anxieties, we we cast our worries, we cast our cares on God. Our second point this morning is this, so it's a call to be humble, and then then my humble and hopeful response is this. This is my humble and hopeful response. I I take my anxiety, I take my care, and I give it to the Lord. What's that anxiety? What's that thing that keeps you up at night? What's the thing that you wake up in the morning and you're thinking about? Maybe you're thinking about it right now. I've heard it said this way, that that anxiety can be like this this big excavator that, that digs down deep into our mind and our heart and it digs these ditches where all of our thoughts begin to flow into these ditches of worry. And Peter says this, he says, cast it down. Give it to him. I mean, to, be, to be desperate for God, it's cultivated in prayer as you're on your knees. Here's the thing, self-sufficient people don't pray. Desperate, humble people call out to the Lord. In fact, if you look how the, how the sentence is, is worded, you see that this idea of casting our anxiety, it's the expression of the humility. See what it says? Humble yourselves. And this says verse 7. How? By casting, casting your anxiety on him. You see the flow of the sentence. My humility is shown in how I give my cares to the Lord, how I cast it onto him. And when you think this idea of casting, don't don't think fishing. You're not not throwing it out to bring it back in again. It's a full, I'm giving this up. I'm transferring the weight fully onto God. I'm I'm not bringing it back onto myself anymore. I'm giving it completely, totally to him. And as we grow in humility, we begin to grow in faith by what? By continually, daily, giving our cares, giving our anxiety to the Lord. Why? Because we trust he's all-powerful. He's in control. He can take care of things that I can't take care of. But also, I love how it says in verse 7, not just powerful, but because he cares for you. You can humble yourself. You can, you can give these cares, these worries, these anxieties to God because you, you can know that he cares for you. You can take it off yourself and like a, a child who's humble say, Father, I need you to take this. I think of it this way, like when my kids are scared at night, right? What do they do? My, my kids, if they have a nightmare, if they're super scared at night, they could come into our bedroom, right? And they come into my bedroom and, the, and I fake sleep so they can go to my wife Libby, right? So they, I'm kidding, They wake us up and then what do your kids do? My kids crawl into bed with us and they fall asleep no problem. Why? Because like now I'm with you. That's the picture going on here, what Peter's saying. Give your worries up. You don't need to worry anymore because you're safe in the arms of your heavenly father. Powerful and caring. So we regularly cast our cares. Big things, small things, anything in your life even today. What do you have right now that needs to be cast onto the Lord? Something, something right now in your life that's causing anxiety or causing anger or causing worry or causing fear. What do you need today to say, uh, God, I need you to take this? What do you need to transfer off of your shoulders onto the shoulders of God's sovereign care? This is where some of us need to get real honest, isn't it? Where We're going to say, Lord, where am I feeling the weight of my self-sufficiency? Where am I carrying things that I need to to give over to you? Where has God, even now, has he begun to take your legs out from underneath you? and, And you've spent so much energy trying to figure out how did this happen? What went wrong? How can I take care of this? How can I change this situation? How can I get myself out of this? And God is saying in this text here this morning, it's time to stop. Like right now, right here, like line in the sand moment where where you say, God, I'm done. I'm done fighting on my own. I'm trusting you because I know you care for me. Now, you might be here this morning saying, wait a minute, Pastor Kai, I've tried that. Man, I've cast my cares onto him. I've given it over to him, and it didn't work. Maybe it didn't work because God wants to do something that works out in a way that that maybe is different than the way you want it to work out. Maybe God wants you to continue to turn it over to him. Why? Because it's creating in you a a God-centered humility as you're so desperately in need of him. And so at at times, listen, God will limit our successes because his aim is that we're dependent on him, that we're resting in him. Because notice what it says in verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Uh, in his timing, he may exalt you. I mean, for Joseph in the Old Testament, right, the proper time, he, he's, he wasn't exalted until he spent 14 years in prison. I right? think of Moses, Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before God exalted him. And, and maybe in your life right now, you're somewhere between the 14 and the 40. Maybe God's leveling some things off. Maybe the humble question is, God, what are you teaching me? God, what are you working on in me? God, what are you drawing out of me? God, God, what are you creating in me? Is it, is it patience? Is it endurance? Is it is it love? Is it forgiveness? What's God doing where. Maybe his plan right now isn't turning everything out how you want it turned out. Maybe his plan right now is is creating in you a heart of dependence. Realizing he's in charge and I'm not. For some of you, this is the battle right now, right? Right? We have these plans. My, my life will turn out this way. My marriage will look like this. My kids will be like this. The situation I'm in right now will look like this. And, and all these plans we have, and then, then life hits and we're knocked off that plan. And what do I do? I start to protest. I'm like, who messed up the sovereign plan of Kai for the world, right? It's in those moments that God exposes that heart. Why not embrace it with humility and say, God, I'm broken. I'm not in control. God, I'm so dependent on you. Maybe right now you're in a season of life where you're like, I don't have that, man. Life is going good for me right now. What do I do? Cast your cares on him. Regularly get in that place where you just see, keep, keep bringing your heart in prayer to him in this humble dependence. God, even today, even as things are good, Lord, I'm just trusting in you. I'm giving it to you. Here's, here's a great way you can pray this prayer. I, I read this in Jerry Bridges' book called Respectable Sins. It's this book where he writes all these sins that Christians are okay with. He's right? like, yeah, we're, we're down with, like we're not good with murder, but I'm okay with these sins. And kind of lists off, and one he lists, lists is the sin of worry. The, the sin of worry where we're actually saying to God, when we worry, we're saying, God, I don't trust you. God, I actually don't want your plans or your control. Here's the prayer he says we can pray, maybe a prayer for you even today, where you'd be able to say, Lord, I'm willing to receive what you give. I'm willing to lack what you withhold and relinquish what you take. Lord, I'm willing to receive what you give. I'm willing to lack what you withhold. I'm willing to relinquish what you take because I'm casting my cares on you because you care for me. When we worry, when we're filled with anxiety and fear, what we're, what we're saying is, man, I don't trust God's power or I don't trust his love. And what we need to do is we need to remember, man, where do we see his power and his love most fully displayed? We see it on the cross of Christ in the resurrection. In fact, it says in Romans eight thirty two, it says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? In other words, when we're worried and anxious, God's saying, listen, I gave you my son. He was torn to pieces for you so that you could be redeemed and saved and changed and transformed. I gave you eternal life. Well, let's not worry about me holding back anything from you that's good. In the hope of humility, it's this, this resting and trusting in God's power, in his care. We say, God, I don't know what's coming, but I know you care for me. I know you know what's best. And we, we give it to him, this, this cares, these anxieties we have. We give it to him and say, God, you're the one who can bring change. You're the one who brings hope. And then you see this hope played out as Peter goes on. In fact, as our final point this morning. It's this, my hope in the desperation. My hope in the desperation. And the first thing we see here when we talk about this hope we have in the desperation is that it's not going to be easy. It's not to just come naturally. Look at verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's saying, be sober-minded, be, be alert, be, be like the soldier that's on night watch. I mean, you, you can't go to sleep because the enemy's out there. You need to stay alert, stay awake. And, and Peter here, he's pulling back the curtain a little bit. And he's saying, hey, here's what else is going on in your fear and worry and anxiety. Satan's at work, and he's going after your faith. He's a lion on the hunt to take you out, to devour you. I don't know if you've watched National Geographic stuff or Discovery Channel, right, where where the lion's hunting. And and who's the lion normally go after, right? The lion has this big herd of antelope, and it's waiting for the weak one who's drifting back, who can't quite run so much, maybe hurt, maybe too old, and that's the one the lion takes out, right? And you're kind of like, no, king of the jungle, as if, fight someone your own size, right? No, am I the only one who gets upset for the antelope? Okay, I actually don't. I love it when the lion... So in 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 the Discovery Channel, the lion goes after the weakest one. But I, I think this, I think it's the opposite in our herd. In our herd, who Satan goes after, who the devil goes after, it's not those who are humbly dependent and know their weakness, it's the ones who stand up in the front of the herd and go, I got this. I'm in control. Nothing's gonna take me out. seems the more success you have, the greater temptation it is to stand up like you've got it and you're an easy target for the devil. He's a roaring lion. What's he, what's he roaring? He, he's doing everything he can to, to deafen the voice of God, to, to lie so much to us that we no longer believe the truth of God. He he comes alongside roaring out lies like he did in the very beginning when he said to Adam and Eve, Did God really say? Is this really true? Does he really care for you? Is he really in control? And and he devours us by replacing our hope with fear, with doubt. So the devil is defeated not by believing more in yourself, but by, by, by believing in the promises of God. Because look what it says, verse 9, resist him how? Firm in your faith. We fight by faith. This is why you need a community of brothers and sisters around you that are continually pointing you to the gospel. They're reminding you of the gospel. It's why we need regular time in the word and in prayer to remind us that victory doesn't come to those who are self-assured. It comes to those who are desperate for God. Those who, who rest in, who believe in the promises of God. Peter goes on here and he basically telling us you're not alone in this. He goes, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is this happen, this happening all over the place. And here's what I think he's saying. Is, I mean, hey, hey, be in community with this because recognize that this kind of anxiousness, this suffering, this difficulty, it's happening all around. So, so get together in community as you're walking this out. Because I would think this, that pride is one of those things that we don't quite see ourselves. It's kind of like the spinach in your teeth, right? Everybody else sees it when you smile, but you don't. That's pride, Right? And so what do we need? We need brothers and sisters around us who love us enough to go, uh, yeah, you got a little pride there in your teeth, right? To call us out, to bring us back to humility, to point us back to who God is because Satan's gonna try to convince you, gonna convince you, one, that you're suffering alone and you're not. Convince you that you got at the worst when you don't. Try to convince you that no one else will understand you. Why? So that you stand up and go, I need to do this on my own. But Peter says, don't, don't do that. Stand firm in the faith. Do this together. And the truth we grab a hold of, the faith we hold on to, is what we believe about Jesus. That Jesus defeated the enemy. That, that at the cross, Satan was defeated, that, that he roars around like a prowling lion, a roaring lion, but, but he's, he's on a leash, that, that Christ defeated him. I've read the book. At the end, Jesus wins, right? Amen. Amen. And right now, it may look like you're losing, but God is writing a story with your life where Jesus already won the victory. Where he's defeated the sting of death, where where his resurrection has won the victory. I mean, what what do you believe about that? Have Have you come to that point in your life where you've embraced that truth in a way that it even changes how you deal with suffering? Peter goes on and he says in verse 10 and 11. And after you've you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace. I love that. The God of all grace. The one who sent his son to take care of our sin. That's the God of all grace. The the God who gave you what you cannot earn. That's the God of grace. The one who gives us what we need. The, The one who provides the comfort we need in the moment of difficulty. That's the God of grace. And then he says this. He himself will restore, will confirm, will establish you. God's gonna finish your story well. God himself will restore you. God himself will confirm you, will strengthen you, will establish you. And so on the basis of that knowledge, we can daily cast our cares on him. Lord, as I look at your strength and your wisdom and your power and your love, I can daily give this worry to you. Here's the thing, casting doesn't mean you never bring it up again. It doesn't mean, hey, just give your worry to God, man. Now, why are you talking about it again? It's because it comes up again, and again and again. You'll have to go, Lord, I'm giving this to you again. It's, it's taken a hold of my heart, but I believe your promises more than I believe these lies and humility. I don't want to control this. I don't want to hold on to this, so I again give it to you. Then you see this humility lived out. It's lived out, verse 11, where you would say, to him be the dominion forever and ever. It's to him be the control. He's the one in charge. That's not a normal thing to say when you're suffering, is it? Like when life is hard for me, I have a choice, but I tell you, I don't always make the right choice because when life is hard, you can either say to God be the glory, it's his dominion, his power, or you say to my dominion, my plans, my control, and then faith, though, listen, faith is so incredibly lived out when, when our prayer is this, when, when life is hard and the promise of the gospel has so gripped your heart that you can say, yes, Lord, your dominion. You don't say it easily, maybe. You say, God, I trust you, even at the funeral, even at the difficulty, even the struggles in your marriage, even though life is not turning out how you thought it would turn out, where you could say, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that's a miracle of the gospel at work in someone's life. It's a place where you say, God, your ways are true. And you realize in humility, God, I need you today like I always have, desperately. As the work team comes up, as we end off this morning, I and mean, for some of you, the burden you're carrying right now um, is heavy. I think of Peter as he's writing this letter. Peter, probably a time when he carried one of the heaviest burdens would have been on that good Friday, the very first good Friday. Remember he had denied Christ. Here he was standing on this Friday. and, And there's nothing good about that Friday. There was nothing that looked like victory on that Friday. As he stood and watched Christ being crucified, it was horrible. And maybe today you're in a good Friday moment. And you're surrounded by suffering and you so desperately need a resurrection hope. This morning, I I pray that in a a new way, in a real way, you see Jesus. That that you see, yes, it it looks like Friday, but but Sunday, not not Sunday's coming, Sunday has already come, that the resurrection has happened, and so you can humble yourself knowing that Christ has been raised for you. You've been changed and redeemed, and, and you're being restored and confirmed and established. And so what do you do in light of that truth? You humble yourself. You cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for the truth of this word. Father, we can trust in you even when things are dark. And then, in that moment of... Of despair, we can either choose to grip and to hold and to try and to, to try to work it out on our own. But God, we know that our only hope is you. And so God, I pray like Peter did on the water. He just cries out, Lord, save me. God, I pray that we would be in that place. That we'd have this eternal hope, a hope that's that's not built on what we can do, but it's built on you, Lord Jesus. It's built on your sacrifice in our place that we know right now we can stand before a holy God, changed, righteous, that our eternity is secure. So Lord God, whether we experience the victory today in this life, whether you work things out for, for the suffering to end now, or whether it'll be an eternity and we stand before you made perfect, we can stand here today knowing the victory's been won. And so we again cast our cares on you, Lord Jesus, building our lives on you, a hope that's everlasting. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.